Thank you for the honor of ministering God's word with you this morning. Because we have a God who speaks, it is a weighty matter to both proclaim his word and to sit underneath the proclamation of his word. So I do not count it a light thing to be invited to minister and preach God's word to God's people. So thank you, brother, for this kind invitation uh, to be here with you all. When I'm invited to speak, I'm always glad to be assigned a text. In many ways, this is much easier than the alternative option of discerning which way to go, right? In this case, having not been assigned a text, I realize the wonderful opportunity that's in front of me to go to my favorite book of the Bible and to mind more gold, for, both for my soul and, Lord willing, your soul this morning. Without hesitation, if somebody were to ask me, what is my favorite book? You, we just read from it. It is the book of Hebrews. I believe I had the privilege of walking with freshmen through the entire Bible at Bethlehem College during their first year. And when we get to Galatians, I am fond of informing them that the German reformer, Martin Luther, cherished Galatians so much that he considered the letter to be his own Katie von Bora, the name of his wife. I aim to follow in the footsteps of this reformer and say that Hebrews is my Elizabeth Ann guest, my own epistle. So again, thank you for this opportunity to return to a book that my soul loves. It was through the book of Hebrews that I saw the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in a very difficult stretch in life. Now, prior to this experience, I would have told you that Jesus was Lord, and I would have told you that he was Savior. But I did not have a category then that he was also beautiful and that he was glorious and that he was surpassingly superior. If Hebrews could be likened to a song that never grows old, the chorus that repeats over and over in this book is that Jesus is the very definition of uniqueness, right? There is none like him at all. He indeed is better than any song that our souls might be tempted to listen to. I find Hebrews to be a perennial fount that never runs dry for my soul that's in need of fresh glimpses of the shining superiority of the sun. Uh, it's an everlasting spring for my work as a pastor, charged with keeping my people's face in Jesus' face through all that life brings to their table. Hebrews is a perpetual wellspring to exhort you from this morning to obey what our passage calls us to do in every season of your life. Whatever circumstance you came to church with this morning, whatever unknown scenario is waiting for you when you leave, whatever situation is anticipating your future arrival, our text has a word of God to say to you and to say to me. I like to think of this passage as a life text because it instructs Jesus' people in every single occurrence, every circumstance, every event, and every stage of life that you would find yourself in. This text speaks to singles, to youth, to young parents, to those struggling with adulting, to parents of teenagers, to empty nesters, to retired folks, to unemployed people, the people in twilight years of life, to middle-aged folks. I say that because in this text, we see 
one of the richest metaphors given to us that illustrates for us the Christian life, and that, in the, that is of a race. Whether you're a new believer or one who has walked with Christ for a while, the metaphor of a race to depict the Christian life is a picture that I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to deeply ingrain in your soul, to deeply ingrain it in your life that it is a felt reality. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you are running a race that has a beginning and that has an end. You're running a race where obstacles and hardships are par for the course. You are running a race where there is a requirement that is essential for completion. And you are running a race where the goal, when, when the goal is reached, you will receive a reward that will make all the difficulties encountered in this race pale in comparison. We've read the text already, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Let me return to it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, sing, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our text this morning is a conclusion of an argument, and it contains indispensable exhortations for us to pay close attention to. Hebrews chapter 12, one, verses 1 to 3, gives us the so what of what has come before in this letter. This is why the word therefore is the first word in the translation that I'm using here in the ESV. Therefore plays double duty by looking back on what was said and forward on what should be done as a result of what's been said. Therefore, it provides us with a logical response that we should take if we've understood the argument properly. To do anything otherwise than what our text says is to go against the grain of our text exhortation and in turn it's the most illogical thing that we can do. Now we'll look at your Bible and make note of the exhortations. We are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we are to be habitually thinking thoroughly about the person who looms large in this letter from the first chapter all the way to the end. It's a challenge to start with the word therefore, though, right? It's hard to start with that particular word. Anybody who interacts with kids get this. You tell them to do something, you exhort them to do something, and you hear a word that we've probably heard about 20 times already since we've gotten up this morning. You know what word I'm talking about? Why? 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 It's hard to start with the word therefore. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how did we get to these exhortations in the first place? Let's travel back and see why the exhortations in our text, they naturally follow the previous exposition that was given in the letter. While only God knows who the author of Hebrews was, I like to call him pastor because in this sermonic epistle, he, we see the work of a pastor being done. We see a shepherd hard at work feeding the flock with exposition on one hand and exhortation on the other, with explanation about Jesus' superiority and encouragement for his people to respond properly to Jesus' excellency. 
We see a pastoral figure shepherding his flock to feed, to have them feed on the lush green pastures of Jesus. Why? Like how one person put it, the Christology of this author's audience was too shallow to inspire endurance. They needed the the nourishment of Christ to overcome the fatigue that was screaming at the top of his lungs for them to drop out the race, to quit, to run for the sidelines instead of running towards the finish line. I want you to pay close attention to the pastor at work as he paints faith-enriching and and hope-replenishing pictures of Jesus that aim to strengthen tired hands, strengthen weak knees, to fill up depleted hearts. Here we have a sermonic letter that's comprised of 13 chapters of a pastor preaching to his people that Jesus is better than anything the difficulties of their race is tempting them to turn to. Therefore, they ought to persevere and press on to the very end. They must not quit. This is what the text said back then. And brothers and sisters, this is what the text is saying to us today. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3 is situated within a larger segment of the book, which spans from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to Hebrews chapter 12, 29, this block of text. If you look back with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, you'll see that it begins like our text does this morning with the word therefore. So our text is embedded, it's in part of a larger exhortation that's coming off of the heels of expositional arguments concerning the superiority of Jesus. The expositional point that the pastor has been making up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, in order to persuade his people is that Jesus is better and the pastor comes with his receipts. When you get a chance, you can go back and read all of Hebrews later. It'll probably take you maybe an hour or so to read all the way through. I encourage you, find a space this week and just read it in one sitting. And you'll see that the pastor comes with his receipts about how Jesus is better. Jesus is God's better word. In fact, he is the best and final word. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus as the son over God's house is better than the towering figure who is just a servant of God's house. Jesus who provides true rest is better than Joshua. Jesus is a better high priest compared to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant with better promises because not only did he offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins and then sat down, he in himself was the better sacrifice, right? He was the better sacrifice which has perfected for all time. It's amazing those who are being sanctified. Jesus is not just a high priest, but he is a great high priest. The author aims to show that his coming exhortation that we see in this block of text that we're in, this exhortation, it stands on the firm ground of Jesus's superiority. Such greatness, in other words, brothers and sisters, demands a response, right? Hence, not just exposition, not just explaining, Not just giving information, but exhorting, calling to action, calling to respond. There indeed is no other place to go but exhortation after such an argument concerning the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better than anything the difficulties of the race is tempting you to turn to. 
Therefore, the logical exhortation that we get is that we ought to preserve, persevere, to endure through the tough terrain that you're running through all the way to the end. In this block of text, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19, through chapter 12, verse number 29, we get a glimpse of why such an exhortation was needed in the first place. Now, it's been said that it's not how you start, but it's how you finish. Well, I guess that depends on how you begin, right? It does seem to matter how you start. And the author reminded his people, he reminded the flock, that they started off pretty well. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 32, and listen to how he reminds them of how well they started. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you began the race, you endured. This word endured here is a key idea in this section that speaks to the ability to bear up in the face of difficulty, to bear up in the face of struggle. Words like fortitude and steadfastness and endurance and perseverance come to mind. It says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes, listen to these sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction because of your stance. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you had a, yourselves a better possession and even an abiding one. Look how the pastor stirred up their memory. Remember how the strong legs of your faith ran with endurance when you first came to Christ. You ran well. The race started well, but it seems like it wasn't going well for some. Apparently, the author's audience was going through something that was so challenging, so draining, so discouraging that they were in danger of giving up. They were ready to call it quits. They were ready to drop out the race that started with such vigor and started with such endurance. And make no mistakes, quitting for them came in the temptation to turn from the better one to something that, is disgu that disguises itself as superior. To turn from the lush green grass of Christ to the artificial turf with a hint of green because it's spray painted, right? The pressure was on to turn from something that wasn't this hard, that wasn't this painful, something that didn't have this level and longevity of suffering. One person put it like this, the congregation to which Hebrews is addressed is quite simply exhausting. They're tired. Not from their daily labor or from the strains of normal life. No, theirs is a fatigue of faith. What a striking phrase, a fatigue of faith. Have you been there before? Have you faced a particular challenging stretch in your Christian journey that made you consider quitting the race altogether? Have you tasted of this type of tiredness? Have you been so fatigued in the faith that all you can think about is an exit strategy? Can I keep it real with you this morning, brothers and sisters? I haven't. And sometimes, if I'm honest, that concerns me. I've not hit a stretch of the race that has led me through a trial where the voice of faith is drowned out by the screens of apostasy or deconstruction or debilitating, debilitating doubt demanding me to quit. What do you do when life without Christ looks much better 
much easier than life with Christ. I wonder if some of you are like me in this matter. What would you do in the day when temptation beckons you to take your eyes off of the prize and put them onto alternative options? How will you respond when faced with difficult circumstances and challenges that threaten to shake your faith and cause you to falter as described in John 6, 6, where many disciples turned away from Jesus? You see, this section in Hebrews is not just for the Christian today that has weak knees and drooping hands and exhausted legs and depleted heart on the brink of walking away from Jesus. That's a fresh word to you if you're walking in that today. This sermonic epistle was not just written, though, for those who feel like they want to quit now. It is also written for those who will feel the temptation to quit in the future. Like those who attempted to quit today, in that day, in the future day, during that agonizing stretch of the contest, we are going to need to see what this pastor did to encourage faithful endurance through the inevitable trials of the race. But there's more. Not only did he remind them at one point that they ran well, he also reminded them that they come from a family of runners who have run well to the very end. These runners stand as an example for current endurance. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if she turns away, if you cut and run, if you give up, my soul will have no pleasure in him, in him, in her. That should be the nightmare of our lives. Not that we might lose our lives, but we might lose his pleasure. Notice what he goes on to say. We get a contrast and an emphasis. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Who are these people that the pastor has in mind? The answer takes us to the most famous parts of Hebrews that showcase what one person called the heroes who endured by faith. I like to call them the Hall of Faith runners. In chapter 11, we see once again the shepherd hard at work for his flock, this time using a rhetorical technique of his day. This was not to display his oratorical elegance as if his aim was to highlight his own greatness. His object was to display the greatness of another, one his people's eyes needed to feast on. This rhetorical device is called an encomium, which is a a use of words aimed at persuasion. And the pastor uses this tool all the way from Hebrews chapter 11 to Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 3, our text. Leland Riken defines an encomium as a work of literature or a use of words written in praise of something, in praise of someone, in praise of a trait, in praise of a quality, in praise of a characteristic. It's a list of examples that highlight something or someone that's worthy of praise and that's worthy of emulation. It's worthy of imitation. In other words, encomiums persuade you to emulate. They persuade you to imitate what is being lifted up and what's being praised. The subject being praised in Hebrews 11 becomes evident to us through repetition. Twenty times the word faith is used and verbs overflow this whole section. 
Faith pictured here is action that's fueled by confidence in that what we hope and, and what we hope for will come a reality. How can such a faith be so confident, one person might ask? Faith's confidence rests on the character of the one who has promised. The entirety of scriptures, brothers and sisters, witness to the fact that God will do what he says he will do. And faith believes in this type of God. So confidence in action is quite appropriate. Faith is the assurance, the proof for what we do not see. How can faith have such an assurance? Because, brothers and sisters, you can take God's promises to the bank, as they say. Faith is not only appropriate, it's also commendable. It's commendable and backed by divine approval. Look at Hebrews 11, 2 to 3. For by, the, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation from who? From God. Oh, brothers, this is one thing to get a commendation from your boss or somebody that you hold in high esteem, but to be a recipient of the commendation from God because of faith, that's what, your heart, that's what our hearts are made for. The sheer importance of the praiseworthy subject of faith in Hebrews 11 is underlined in verse number 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The shepherd's goal was to usher his flock through the halls of redemptive history for fresh encouragement to model the same commendable and enduring faith in their race. Here's how one person explains what encomiums were meant to accomplish. The goal of it is to draw on past examples of faith to encourage similar faithfulness as well as to create solidarity to those who had gone before. In other words, the pastor is reminding them that they have come from a family of runners. Running well and enduring by faith is in their blood. It is stitched in their DNA. They are to remember the examples of the Old Testament saints and emulate their faith. Taking my cue from chapter 11, verse number 32, time would fail to tell you of all of the commendable, enduring faith actions of people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and the rest of the people that are listed in this, this hall of faith. I encourage you to go check that out when you get a chance. But traveling back, do you see now how appropriate it is for our verse to start with a therefore? Coming off of an expositional argument that persuades the audience of the superiority of Jesus, the pastor exhorts his audience to endure by reminding them that not only have they run well by faith in the past, but they also are of those who run well by faith to the end. And now verse 12, chapter 12, verse number, 30, verse number one, therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded, by so great a cloud of witnesses, so great, think quantitatively, since we are surrounded by so many witnesses. Think qualitatively. The quality of their witness is the fact that faith is commendable. This great cloud of witnesses actively testifies to the fact that faith is commendable to God who is faithful to his promises. And God, in turn, commends these type of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance, with the capacity to bear up and to continue to bear up under the difficulty of the race, especially when our good and wise providential father sets a hard stretch before us. 
The exhortation to run with endurance underscores the reality that the race called the Christian life is not a sprint, but it is a marathon with many stretches of varying difficulty. The race set before us highlights the providential sovereignty of our good God and wise Father who designs the course of your race for your good and for his glory. Both the joyful parts of the race and, brothers and sisters, the grueling parts of the race. There's a question, however, that leaps from this text, and I wonder if you're asking it. This question reminds me of a track meet that I ran in in high school. I was a sprinter in high school, and my races were gladly the 100, the 4 by 100, and the 200 meter races. My task was to get into the starting block and to get it over with real quick, and then sit back and ponder why in the world somebody would want to run a race like a 3,200 meter race. No thank you, right? One particular track meet, my coach asked me to run a race that, was, uh, that I've never run before because one of my teammates did not show up. It was the 400 meter race. Like I said, I never ran it before. I didn't pay attention to anybody that ran it before. I calculated the race in my young mind saying, well, 400 is only one time around the track. That's just four 100s. Uh, That's just two 200s. I got you, coach. I got this. I didn't ask for any advice. He didn't give me any instructions. When it came down to race time, I confidently, Pastor Aaron got into the starting block, looking real good, ready to shoot out the gate. The gun goes off. Boom, off to the races. And when I tell you I'm off to the races, I'm running at a dead sprint like it's a 100 meter. And I'm in first place. I'm in first place to such a degree that I probably had a a track scholarship to every uh, good track school in the country at that particular moment, right? Every prestigious track school probably was waiting for me to get done so I can get on their team. I'm still doing pretty well during the 200 meter part of the race but then something happened around the 250 mark. I started hearing footsteps. I stopped feeling my legs. My D1 scholarship was disappearing before my very face as I moved from first place to second place to third place to fourth place. What started out with such promise ended in the disappointment of last place in a hurt ego. What I realized was that that 400 meter race involved strategy. And I never took the time to ask the question that arises from this text. How do you run the race? I see that we are to run with endurance the race providentially set before us to the end. But how? What's beautiful about our text is that not only do we see the logical exhortation to run the race of the Christian life because of the superiority of Jesus, but we also see the answer to the next natural question. The text tells us how we are to run the race, especially, brothers and sisters, when the race that is providentially set before you is beset with difficulties that clamor for you to quit. How are we to run the race with endurance is set before us? Our text tells us primarily two ways. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Word has it that back in the day during the time of this letter, Greek races were run by by contestants basically um, with as little clothes as possible as they could have on. The, The runners might arrive with colorful robes on, maybe like a box of wood in our day, but they would discard these robes. Why? The runner needed to run unencumbered. 
any weight would potentially hinder the goal of completing the race. This leads to a necessary question for you to ponder and for you to ask your brothers and sisters that you are doing life with. What weight do you need to lay aside? What weight is it that is hindering you in this race called the Christian life? What's strategic about this verse is that it doesn't specify a particular weight. In other words, whatever gets in your way, whatever hinders your running, as a strategy, lay it aside so that you can run with endurance. Maybe it's too much time and energy spent on your social media accounts. Maybe it is things like a pursuit of a particular lifestyle or a relationship. Is that getting in the way? Maybe it's a fixation on comfort or being in control. Maybe it's the cares of this world or an unbalanced work life. Maybe it's the weight of expectations that you feel that you are constantly under. Weights can be good things in and of themselves also, like, hab- like uh, uh, habits or hobbies that are not wrong, but giving too much time, giving too much of your energy, giving too much of your focus, it just gets in the way. It just, it just hinders the race. Brothers and sisters, you know the weight that is getting in your way, and that's hindering you. Get with a brother, get with a sister, and strategize some ways to lay it aside. Not because it's inherently wrong in and of itself, per se. It's just getting in the way. We are also to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. Better stated, the sin that easily entangles and easily distracts. Here, too, sin is left undefined. Maybe for you, it's the sin of pride and all of its ugly manifestations from demanding your sovereign way to not being willing to consider the ways of another. What we might call big sins come to mind when we hear a verse like this. But don't forget what Jerry Bridges calls the respectable sins. Sins like discontentment and unthankfulness and selfishness. Maybe it's being quickly irritable or judgmental. Why does sin so easily entangle and distract? When the race is hard, the alluring invitation of sin is that it can offer you something better than Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is of strategic importance to lay aside the sin that so easily trips us up and distracts us because This is how you run the race set before you with endurance. You know the sin that easily causes you to stumble. Get with a brother or sister and strategize of ways to lay it aside because sin doesn't just simply encumber us. Sin kills us and seeks to abort the race altogether. Here we come to the main way that we run the race, though. Once you look at it with me, underline it, highlight it, circle it, put some stars around it. Chapter 12, 1 and 2, let us, run the, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus. This is no mere glance or brief look. How are we to run the, with, the, with endurance the race set before us? Fix your eyes. Direct your attention while ignoring distraction. Lock in. Deeply focus on Jesus. Let your eyes feast on Christ and let your eyes feast on how he is described here in this text. First, it is Jesus, you would notice, which use of his personal name highlights his incarnation as one who 
like us shared in our humanity and like us, but infinitely greater knows our temptation, but unlike us, he never gave in. Fix your eyes on the one who knows what you are going through because he himself suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's more to see. He is the founder and the perfecter of faith. I've always read this as in Jesus is the one who initiates and completes our faith. Thanks be to God that he indeed initiates and completes our faith. It seems like, though, in the context of the great cloud of witnesses, Jesus stands forth as the greatest witness of endurance. He is the leader and the pioneer of your faith as the superior example. He is the perfecter of faith in that he embodied for us how enduring faith reaches the finish line, what it looks like to sit down, race complete at the right hand of God. I like how one person put it with this different nuance. Let us run with endurance the race set before us with our eyes locked in on Jesus, the champion in the exercise of faith and the one who brought faith to complete expression. Love that. Look at the champ. Because in Jesus, we see how the encomium list in Hebrews chapter 11 is intended to work by ending and climaxing with the greatest model of faith. There are many examples of those who ran by faith, but they culminate in the supreme example of Jesus who is the better runner. Look at the better runner, Jesus who prevailed in his own race by enduring who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising and disregarding the shame. He is the unsurpassed perfecter of faith, which is seen again in his current position where he currently is, which is seated at the right-hand throne of God. We have an enthroned and exalted superior runner on the throne who is ready to help all those whose eyes stay locked on him as they run their race. You run your race in all of its stretches to the very end. I say eyes locked because it's a picture that we ought to have in mind. Looking at Jesus means that we can't look in two directions at one time. To run your race looking at Jesus is to look away from your immediate circumstances, to look away from the weights that hinder and the distractions of sin that come to the one who gives grace to emulate his endurance by considering the example that he sets of faithful endurance. Our high priest sat down and he accomplished his task. He didn't give up. He didn't abandon his mission. It seems like the pastor's prescription for perseverance is Jesus's own faithfulness to endure to the end and to receive the prize. Now, brothers and sisters, by grace, go and do likewise. Someone might say, well, what is the prize? Jesus is our prize. The new heavens and earth is going to be amazing. I can't wait to get there and see it. But Jesus is our prize. He is the better wreath that we get once the race is done. Keep your eyes locked on the prize who is the captain of our salvation, our example, and our reward. Do you see this pastor doing the quintessential work of a shepherd, which is to keep his people's face in Jesus' face locked? Locked. We didn't get how to run the race with endurance set before us. Like a good preacher, the pastor here repeats himself from another angle with this second exhortation. Look at it, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, 3 to 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. We are to give ourselves to careful 
deliberate, consistent, thoughtful, looking and looking and looking at the one who endured. It matters where your mind is at when you are running the race. I can only imagine the mental battle that goes on in the mind of a marathon runner. Keynote, keyword is, I can only imagine. You won't be catching me running the marathon soon, but I can imagine how in that particular race, your thought life matters. Notice why. Consider him who endured so that you may not grow weary and you may not grow faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do you see the logic of the text? The pastor gave his people and us a quintessential strategy to running the Christian race, this life of the Christian race with endurance, is to keep your eyes locked on Jesus who faithfully endured. Notice that while the pastor is encouraging our endurance, our endurance is not the center of his attention. The endurance of another is highlighted, namely Jesus. So it seems like the logic of this passage seems to be that the source of our endurance is not found in us, but in Jesus's endurance. In other words, when we hear the word endure, our first thought ought to be about Jesus. Not only is Jesus's endurance much more important, it is the source of our endurance. Therefore, brothers and sisters, persevere in keeping your eyes locked on him. There are no days off, right? Since we are all called to run our race every day, we ought to look every single day. How do I look, somebody might ask. You go to your text and you open it up and you look with the help of the Holy Spirit to see. You can't afford not to. How else do you look? You do what you do are doing here this Sunday. You gather with God's people and you look together both in singing and worship and taking the Lord's Supper and praying and seeing the embodiment of Christ among you. You can't afford not to do it. And how else do you look? You don't run by yourself. The text says, let us, let us run, let us run, run in community, spurring one another on to look at Jesus together. Tim Keller recently tweeted that by praying with friends and others, you will be able to see facets of Jesus that you have not yet perceived. There will be days, brothers and sisters, when you will be called upon to help another brother or sister look at Jesus. And there will be days when they will help you see Jesus through the foggy fatigue of faith. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 gives us both what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. Let's pray. Father, This letter that you've given us is an outworking of Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. It shows us the one that we are called to have our eyes locked in on in every stretch of the race called this Christian life that you have granted us much grace to be on. Father, grant us grace to see more and more of the beauty and the worth and the majesty of your son. Help us to know him both as Lord and Savior, as the one who is beautiful and glorious, and as the one who is our example. And when our hearts are weary and ready to faint, oh, Father, would you grant us much grace to cast our eyes on the one who endured to the end and is our better runner. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.